Father, we're so thankful for this day, and we pray for Doug. We lift him up to you, and we're sorry that he's not feeling well. And we pray, God, that you'd help him to rest today, that we pray that he might be able to recover quickly, that it wouldn't be a, a serious flu bug that would hold on a long time, but just be a short thing. And uh, God, just grateful for his ministry and just his partnership. Just so thankful for him. And God, just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable to you this morning. And we pray that your spirit would use this for your glory and for your purpose. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Doug suggested maybe I ought to use a sermon that I've done in a previous church before. And and I thought about that, but actually there's been a passage, kind of an obscure passage that I've been playing around with for almost two weeks now and, and just spending some time there. And uh, I just really feel like God was saying, hey, why don't you use what you've learned from that and just share that. And so uh, I'm going to invite us to look at 2 Kings chapter 6, starting in verse 24. And so I think it's going to be on the screen behind me. I think the guys were able to get it up there. And uh, you can also please follow along in your Bibles or your phones, your phone app on the Bible. And it is an obscure passage. It's kind of a bizarre passage. And so uh, it's, I'm going to read quite a number of verses. And it'll look, it looked a little kind of interesting, but I think God's going to use it uh, for his purpose this morning. So let's begin 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24. God's word says, Sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. Now, Samaria at this point is part, still part of Israel. It's the northern part of the kingdom. The, Israel had separated into two kingdoms, but this is still God's people. The Jews are still in the north of Israel. This is still the king of Israel, and, uh, and this is the area of Samaria in the northern kingdom. So then it goes on and says, There was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver. Now that's really bizarre. Let me kind of talk about what that means for a little bit. So we've got a siege going on. They're trapped inside the city. It tells us a donkey's head's going for 80 shekels. So they're going, they're starving. And, and 80 shekels, we're like, what, how much is that? And 80 shekels at that time would have been a year's wages. So can you imagine a year's wages for a donkey's head? That's pretty desperate. And it goes on, it says a quarter of a cab, a cab, of, cab of seed pods for five shekels. That's like, t- imagine a... a pot of peas going for a month's wages. That's what we're looking at right here in terms of desperation. And it goes on and says, as the king of Israel is passing by on the wall, a woman cried to him, help me, my lord, the king. The king replied, if the Lord does not help you, where can I get help from you? From the threshing floor, from the wine press? He's basically saying there is no grain in the threshing floor. There is no wine in the wine press. There's no resources. And then he asked her, what's the matter? And she answered, this woman said to me, give up your son so we may eat him today and tomorrow we'll eat my son. So we cooked my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, give up your son so we may eat him. But she had hidden him. Pretty bad, isn't it? Pretty bad. And when the king heard the woman's words, he tore his robes. As he went along the wall, the people looked and they saw that under his robes he had sackcloth on his body. Total desperation at this point. They've run out of food. They don't have any place to turn. And in verse chapter 7, it goes on in verse 1, Elisha, the prophet, replied, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a sea of the finest flour will sell for a shekel and two seeds of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. 
He's saying by this time, 24 hours from now, he said there's going to be bargain prices for flour and for barley. It's almost too, too good to believe. And so the officer on whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, could this happen? He doesn't believe it. He's so hopeless, he doesn't believe that even God can save them. And it goes on and says, You will see it with your own eyes, answered Elisha, but you will not eat any of it. In verse 3 it says, Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate, and they said to each other, Why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there, and we will die. Or if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. Still desperate. And it says at dusk they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. And when they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of the chariots and horses and a great army. So that they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. And they left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, entering one of the tents, and ate and drank. Then they took silver, gold, and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. Then they said to each other, What we are doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. So they went and called out to the city gatekeepers and told them what they discovered. So it is a very bizarre passage, isn't it? Now you're kind of probably wondering, where are we going to go with this thing? So just to kind of summarize, again, the Syrian army led by Ben-Hadad is waging siege. He's doing a blockade against the city of Samaria. He's cut them off from all their resources, all their possessions, and the city uh, is suffering and things are getting very desperate, right? The enemy is outside the walls of the city and has ample provisions. They're, they're prepared to continue to, to hold the siege until either the Israelites surrender or they starve to death. It didn't really matter to them. And so we have the story of this incredible economic inflation that's going inside the walls of the city. Again, a donkey's head for a year's worth of wages. People have even turned to cannibalism. And King Jerem is walking around the walls of the city that seems to be doomed, and he's weeping in utter despair. But not all is lost. Elisha, the prophet, has assured the city that the famine is going to ultimately end. In fact, it's going to end in 24 hours in a day, and that food will be so plentiful that they're going to have bargain prices for the grain that they can buy. He he foretells of this reduced price of goods, and it sounds a little bit like the cries of a vendor. The royal officer of the king doesn't believe him. He feels like the situation is too hopeless. He believes that not even God can rescue them, and he mocks the prophet in in the meanwhile. And so outside the city walls, there's this other drama that's taking place that the city doesn't even know is happening, right? Uh, We're told from the scripture that the enemy has been routed, that some scholars maybe believe that it was an army of angels that that caused them to run away and retreat swiftly. But what we do know is that only a few lepers know what has happened in the enemy's camp. In the passage, we just read about this unbelievable human tragedy. And really, at the beginning, it really describes human depravity at its worst. And then we see this image, this incredible image of God's mercy. 
And ultimately also responsibility that comes with those who experience God's great mercy. So I want to just go back and look and start again at kind of verses 1 through 3 in chapter 7. And this really kind of gets into the human depravity in the situation. So we think about leprosy. We hear about leprosy in this passage. And leprosy was a little bit like maybe what we think of a Ebola disease today in Africa. So this was an ancient disease. Uh, still happens every once in a while across the world. We just don't see it as much. But it was viewed in Scripture not only as this terrible disease, but also a sign of sin. And lepers were like living corpses. And, and they were separated from society because of the fear of contamination. And so the leprosy isolated the person and it corrupted their physical body and eventually would destroy the victim. And in the same way, God's sin separates us from God. It isolates us from God and it produces this inner decay in our lives and this unbelief in spiritual and physical death comes to us because of sin. And in contrast, we have this image of the king's officer who was physically whole. He was a leader. He was a strong man. He was one of the the best and the brightest of the Israelites. And so from the outside, he looks as good as anybody. But we also see that he's spiritually sick because he doubts that God can accomplish a miracle. Now, the lepers understand their plight better than probably anybody else connected to the city. The problem with us today is that so often too many of us fail to see our sinful condition for what it is. We see ourselves as sometimes fairly clean, and yet we're corrupted by sin. When people say they have a clear conscience, it usually means they have a bad memory. People don't like to be confronted with the truth about themselves. I don't always like it either. Denial of sin is like a man that I heard about who was reading uh, an article in the newspaper about the connection between smoking and lung cancer, and he decided to to give it up. He decided to give up reading, that is. So that's denial, right? I heard about a missionary who was telling a real story about a person in their area that they were serving who refused to receive medical treatment who was a leper, but the person refused because he believed he didn't have the disease of leprosy. Have we seen our, our sin like leprosy sores? Do we recognize the devastation of sins in our lives and in the world that we live in and the, the, the connections, the family, the relational connections we have? This is how God views our sin. Even our righteousness, Scripture describes as filthy rags. This is what Isaiah says. Our leprous sins nail Jesus to the cross. It's what causes Christ to have to go to the cross. The burden, the disease of our sins cause Christ to go to the cross? Do we hate our sins enough to turn to Christ in despair, but also for hope? Another image in this scripture, I think, is just this image of this siege. And, and that the people inside the walls of this city, they think that the situation is hopeless. The enemy has surrounded the city walls and they just don't see any way out. And it made me think about, you know, today so often we're not faced with real armies But I think there are things in our lives that sometimes feel like a real army has caused us to have a siege in our life. I think about, you know, we're assaulted at times by temptations and pressures, the pleasures of the world, the the siege of self-satisfaction. Have you ever seen self-satisfaction as an enemy? I think there are times that it really is an enemy. I read stories um, in history about how 
in the South Pacific Islands where often the Americans were fighting the Japanese in World War II, that, that often a soldier might get separated from his units. And fear of being exposed or captured by the enemy, uh, either the Japanese soldier or the American soldier would go up into the jungle and hide out because they were too afraid to come out. And so they ended up, many of them, living for months, some of them even years, in the jungle hiding in fear. And the stories about how some of these people were found after the war was over and they were told that the war was over, there was no more war, but they didn't believe the people. They didn't believe them. They were too afraid to believe that the conflict was over. It wasn't until they heard the news on the radio that the war was over that they really believed that it was safe. The news that not only was the war over, but that the army was sending the soldiers home. Sin was defeated on the cross, but sin can can prevent people from knowing when the conflict is over. So we have this image, this desperate situation in humanity. I mean, it was as bad as it ever gets. And yet, in verses 4 through 8 in chapter 7, we also see this incredible image of God's mercy. The Bible urges us to throw ourselves on God's mercy. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross is God's mercy for a broken and sinful world. Even some of those who shed Christ's blood on on the cross were saved by it ultimately. Mercy means we're no longer condemned. Once we were condemned in our sin, but when we are in Christ, we are no longer condemned. Along with mercy comes healing. The lepers outside the city walls were brought to the point of desperation, right? They resolved ultimately to surrender to the enemy, to throw themselves on the mercy of the enemy. They had a go-for-broke spirit. And death was already staring them in the face, and they had nothing to lose by going over to the enemy. And it makes me think about how blessed we are for those who surrender to the Lord. Those who call on the Lord's mercy are blessed. At the end of Civil War, uh, Abraham Lincoln was asked how he was going to treat the rebellious Confederate army that had finally surrendered. And the question kind of hinted at the desire to see the South severely punished for the war. And unexpectedly, the mercifully, merciful president replied, I will treat them as if they had never been away. I think it's a beautiful image. I mean, in, 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 when we are finally in Christ, reconciled to Christ, when we give our life to Christ, that's how God treats us. He treats us as if we had never been away, as if we had never rebelled, as we have never left him. We sometimes fail to appreciate the mercy of God. He's defeated our enemies, and yet we so often continue to fret and worry about our lives. God has provided us what we need. Yet like Samaria, we're starving, even though we are near a feast, a feast of God. We don't realize that the enemy has fled, that all that we need is already readily available through God's gifts. The people of Samaria felt like prisoners, and yet they were free. They didn't even know it. They were free. God tells us to cast our cares upon him because Sin and death have been defeated. They're no longer issues for those who are in Christ. And we are more than conquerors through Christ. Those who cannot accept God's promises cannot be happy. We need to live realizing the enemy has been defeated. And we need to rest in Christ's finished work and rejoice in his victory. Not only rest, but to lavish in God's mercy for us. Think about this. Before Christ, we're like the lepers at the city wall full of disease, of the disease of sin, and it's going to lead to death, and we're starving and begging for scraps that we hope are going to get us by to the next day. But in Christ, 
We're like the lepers who stumble into the enemy's camp and they just have this treasure trove of food and wine and gold and silver and more than they can eat and keep to themselves. This amazing picture of God's grace, of God's mercy. But it also leads to responsibility. I think about verses 9 and 10 and the weight of responsibility that they realized that they couldn't just hoard all this for themselves, right? The key verse of the chapter, I think, is verse 9, and it says, this is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. The lepers were forced to live outside the city gates, and they were outcasts. They were kept apart from the city, and they were half dead from hunger and from their disease, and they, they approached the, the enemy's camp with caution. They were expecting to be challenged, maybe even killed and to their surprise they discover the camp is deserted and they have the abandons they're, they're just all this goods are theirs to, to use and to, to keep for themselves but then they remember and they realize the city's starving the city has no hope and we have all this treasure to ourselves and this is not good and they could rationalize they could say you know what we haven't been treated very nice as lepers you know they've kept us outside the city they've just given us scraps and You know, they haven't really treated us very well. And, you know, we could keep this good news to ourselves. But they ultimately knew that the city was going to find out at some point. And they see it as their duty to inform the city that the enemy is left. They may also have feared being punished, right? For once the news was eventually found out, they'd be in trouble if they didn't tell the city about it. And so they go back to the city with this unbelievable good news. And it reverberates throughout the city, reaching even the ears of the sleeping king. And, and yet there's this sense among the leaders and the king that maybe it's a trick by the enemy. Like maybe it's not really true. And so the king ultimately sends out a scouting party to see if, if the news of these lepers is really true. And he doesn't even hardly believe it. And so the scouting party goes out and they come back and they tell him it's really true. They're, the enemy is nowhere to be found. And all the food and the... The wine and all the treasures are in the camp. And so they, the, the city just celebrates. And in fact, the story goes on in Scripture and it talks about how when the good news had reached the, the king from the lepers into the officer that had previously doubted Elisha, that the king, again, was nervous that the enemy was tricking him, but the, the officer felt like, again, it wasn't true. It wasn't real. He doubted God. And so... As the city finally receives the news from the scouting party that, no, the enemy's left and this whole treasure is out there. Let's go get the food. Let's go get the gold and the silver in the city. Basically, they stampede in hunger out of the city gate. And you know what happened to the officer? He got caught in the stampede and he was run over and killed. And so Elisha's prophecy actually came true that, that this guy would hear about the good news, but he wouldn't actually get a chance to eat or to taste it. And I've heard evangelism one time defined as one beggar telling another where he found bread. And I love that image. And we should be ready and willing to present a witness whenever God gives us the opportunity. When we ask God to give us opportunities to share our faith and to invite people to church, God's going to give us opportunities. He'll give it to us. It's up to us to, to take those opportunities and to seize them when we're given those opportunities. The lepers, they found plenty of food and wine and silver and gold and clothing. And finally they said to each other, what we're doing is not right. This is wonderful news and we're not sharing it with anyone. And isn't that what we do when we keep the good news of Jesus to ourselves? There's a world out there that's lost and broken and hurting. And they're dying in their sins. And 
They're not knowing the good news that's available to all. There are people out there that have given up. They pray and they expect the worst. We must tell them about the hope that Christ has provided. What do people know about us? So often they likely know sometimes our political views, although it's a little dangerous today to talk about politics. They probably know what sports teams we root for. Uh, they know, probably know our favorite novels and movies and our favorite restaurants. And, you know, they, li- they know our likes and our dislikes. But what do they know about our faith? We find it easy to discuss all sorts of personal likes and dislikes. Yet too often, I think, we clam up when we have the opportunity to share about our faith. Witnessing or faith sharing is something we're counting on others to do. Christians are sometimes like football fans. Some of you have probably heard this. You can go to an NFL game and you can watch 22 men who are desperately in need of arrest. Then you can see the 60,000 fans in the stands who are desperately in need of exercise. We're desperately in need of being able to share our faith, the hope of our faith, with those that we come in contact with. We're needed on the field. Do we care enough about others and their plight to tell them about the good news of Christ. Their condition ought to overcome our fears. I don't believe in shoving the message of Jesus down people's throats who aren't ready for it. You know, and and I believe in tact, but sometimes I think we're so tactful that we fail to make contact. We fail to tell the story of the good news. We need to clearly communicate our faith to Christ, to people who are starving for the bread of life and afflicted, by the sin of disease. We must tell them that there is hope. If we don't, it's not good. It's not good. We need to feel like the lepers in the camp where the treasure is all over the place and realize it's not good if we don't share with others about what God has done in this situation. We must tell them that there is hope. The world needs to know that there is hope. My neighbor needs to know that there is hope. My coworkers need to know that there is hope. My fellow students need to know that there is hope. And there is hope. God has done this amazing thing. He has, he has given us this incredible gift. He's given us this incredible treasure. And it's for our benefit, for sure, but not just for our benefit and our good, but also for the good of everyone that God has created. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this really bizarre scripture that, that's in the Old Testament. And God, we thank you that it kind of foreshadowed what you were going to do later on through Christ. God, that, that you looked down on our, our desperate, depraved condition and you realized there was no hope. There was no hope for the weight of our sins, for the, the disease of our sins. And yet, God, in your, in your mercy and in your, in your love, you, you gave us the gift of your Son, and your Son gave us the gift of his life on the cross for our sins, not because we deserve it or we've earned it, but, God, because we didn't. And yet, in and through your love, you were willing to make that great sacrifice for us. God, we, we're so thankful for this incredible good news, this incredible treasure of your mercy that's come to us. And God, we pray that you'd help us to be found faithful as your children, as, as disciples of Christ, that, that we would be faithful to the mission that you've given the church to go and make disciples, to share this incredible great news about what has been accomplished 
that you've defeated the enemies of sin and death through the gift of your Son, Jesus. And that in and through Christ, there's this amazing treasure that's available to all who will receive it. God, help us to be found faithful, to share that hope with others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.